This is Christian Knutson and Seeger Gray with your local news, coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Public Health Madison, Dane County, has issued an indoor mask order which goes into effect this Thursday, August 19th. The new policy applies to everyone over the age of two. The order comes a little over two weeks after the Public Health Department issued a mask advisory. That measure encouraged but did not mandate mask wearing while indoors. This new mask order, which does mandate mask wearing indoors, comes as new COVID cases are surging across Wisconsin. According to the Wisconsin Department of Health Services, the state's rolling seven-day average of new cases now stands at around 12,000 per day. In some bright news, though, more than half of all Wisconsinites have now completed a COVID-19 vaccine series. Just north of 2.9 million people, about 50.2% of the state's total population, have been fully vaxxed. A Republican state senator and outspoken COVID vaccine critic has tested positive for the coronavirus. The Associated Press reports André Jacques of De Pere was at the hospital on Monday with pneumonia. The, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that Jacques has not confirmed whether or not he was admitted to the hospital due to his illness. Jacques' positive test and hospital trip come just a few days after he testified in a crowded legislative committee hearing at the Capitol building. Jacques, who attended the hearing in person, did not wear a mask during the roughly seven-hour meeting. The family of a man killed during Kenosha protests last year has filed a lawsuit alleging that Kenosha law enforcement facilitated the attacks perpetrated by Kyle Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse, then 17, killed two and injured a third during protests against police violence last August. According to the Associated Press, the federal lawsuit is seeking unspecified damages against Kenosha County Sheriff David Beth, the former Kenosha Chief of Police Daniel Miskinis, and the city's acting police chief Eric Larson. Unnamed officers and deputies are also included in the lawsuit. The case is being brought by the family of Anthony Huber, one of the men killed that night. Per court documents, the Huber family argues that the defendants, quote, deputized these armed individuals, conspired with them, and ratified their actions by letting them patrol the streets armed with deadly weapons to mete out justice as they saw fit, unquote. Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call is suing to remove the chair of the state's Natural Resources Board. The board is the governing and policy-setting body for the state's Department of Natural Resources. Its chair is Frederick Prane, a Scott Walker appointee who served on the board for six years. Prane's term theoretically expired this past May, although he has repeatedly refused to step down from the board. Call's lawsuit comes about a week after the Natural Resources Board approved a 300-wolf quota for this fall's controversial wolf hunt. That's more than double the 130-wolf quota recommended by the DNR's wildlife biologists. The Capital Times reports the Madison Metropolitan School District isn't currently considering a vaccine mandate for its staff. The decision comes as other large school districts across the nation are imposing mandatory vaccinations for their staff. According to data from the Wisconsin Department of Health Services, nearly 77% of people who live within the school district have received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine. That accounts for nearly 189,000 people. Madison's students will be heading back to classes in two weeks. Meanwhile, the Madison City Council is delaying a return to in-person meetings. 
Madison Alders were set to return slowly to in-person meetings next month. That would have involved alternating between in-person and virtual council sessions. The Cap Times reports that Alders will continue meeting over Zoom until further notice. The Dane County Board of Supervisors has also abandoned plans to return to in-person meetings. County board meetings will also be held over Zoom for the foreseeable future. And now, on to today's top stories. Yesterday, Madison's Transportation Policy Board approved new bus fare collection policies. Notably absent from the list, though, was a proposal to transition away from cash fares. WORT producer Jonah Chester takes the story from here. For the foreseeable future, Madison's Metro Transit will continue accepting cash payments for single-ride fares, while also implementing a system to accommodate tap cards and smartphone verification in the near future. Yesterday, Madison's Transportation Policy Board dropped a proposal to eliminate cash fares. Metro Transit General Manager Justin Stierenberg says that proposal may be revisited in the future. At some point in the future, um, if cash use drops to something that's extremely small, um, we may revisit that that question. But for now, we'll move forward assuming that we'll continue to collect cash um, on, on all services. A citywide overhaul to the bus fare system is set to roll out in the next two years. Included in the approved overhaul is a reduced fare program for certain riders, ticket kiosks at some bus stations, and an initiative to allow riders to reload bus passes at local retailers. The proposals are part of a system-wide fare collection redesign that seeks to complement the city's forthcoming Bus Rapid Transit Program, or BRT. BRT will connect to the city's east and west sides using high-frequency, minimal-stop bus lines. The project is tentatively set to launch by the summer of 2024. The now-defunct measure to transition away from cash fare was in service of BRT's overall goal, speed. Metro Transit authorities hoped that moving to a cashless system would expedite the passenger boarding process. But the proposal faced some pushback. Susan DeVos is the president of Madison Area Bus Advocates. Speaking at a public hearing earlier this month, she expressed concerns that discontinuing cash fare could disenfranchise some riders. Certainly, slowing the bus was a popular argument against having bike racks on the front of buses or mainstreaming wheelchairs on regular buses, arguments that fortunately did not prevail. The city has also considered wholesale eliminating bus fares, but according to an analysis by Metro Transit, that route could cost the city anywhere from $7.5 to $18.4 million annually. That estimate does not include additional costs from supporting the bus rapid transit system. Also at yesterday's meeting, Metro Transit staff briefed board members on predicted cost increases for BRT. The project's anticipated cost now stands at $166 million. That's $6 million more than original estimates predicted. Sternberg says that the increased price tag is due to the rising cost of materials and labor, a trend that's been playing out across the country. But Sternberg says the city won't have to appropriate more money to cover the increase, as the value of city land holdings and additional funds from the federal government offset the cost. However, we were able to accommodate that without any change into what we're currently planning from, um, from an appropriation, local appropriations perspective. Madison's Bus Rapid Transit initiative has attracted controversy in recent weeks. A three-block portion of the route through State Street has drawn the ire of downtown business owners, who argue the buses will disrupt their business. 
Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. COVID-19 has been on the rise again this summer, prompting new concerns about the impact on nursing home patients. Advocates say it's time for the industry to require workers to receive a shot so that vulnerable patients don't become infected. For more, here's Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection. In Wisconsin and around the U.S., there are growing calls for a COVID-19 vaccination mandate for nursing home staffs. A nonprofit says many facilities are failing to meet an industry goal. AARP says its latest tracking data show that only 18% of Wisconsin nursing homes have met the industry target of 75% of workers vaccinated. Collectively, only 60% of long-term care facility workers in America have received their COVID shots. AARP Wisconsin's Helen Marks Dick says given the spike in patient deaths last winter, Now's not the time to see vaccinations languish as variants spread. If you're walking into a nursing home unvaccinated, you're putting a lot of people at risk that have health challenges to begin with. ARP is gathering federal data as part of its COVID-19 nursing home dashboards, which are summarized in four-week periods. Dick says there was a major push for nursing home vaccinations earlier this year, but things stalled over the summer. She points to industry fears of worsening staffing shortages as one factor. Generally, personal freedoms and questions about health effects are often cited by those who haven't been vaccinated yet. Dick says it's important for nursing homes to issue the mandates because there are roadblocks in trying to get policymakers to establish a requirement for the broader public. The rates are increasing slightly. And Wisconsin is doing better than average for both the number of nursing home residents and nursing home staff that are vaccinated, but it's still not at the levels we'd like to see. Groups such as the American Medical Association have called for vaccination mandates for health care employees, including long-term care workers. Coinciding with those calls is an increase in COVID case activity at nursing homes. Recent dashboards show a nationwide increase of 50 percent among residents. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. In early June, Public Health Madison Dane County dropped all of its public health orders, and then for 10 weeks, things returned to some semblance of normalcy. Now, though, amid rising case rates and hospitalizations for COVID-19, the agency is issuing a new indoor mask mandate, which is set to go in effect this Thursday. To discuss the continuing threat of the Delta variant and local public health officials' efforts to combat 
the surge. WORT producer Jonah Chester spoke with Dr. Ajay Sethi, an associate professor of population health sciences at UW-Madison. Today, Public Health Madison in Dane County announced that it would be reissuing its public health mask mandate starting this Thursday. Now, you and I talked about 10 weeks ago at the beginning of June when public health actually dropped its uh, its public health order. So quite a bit has changed here in the past 10 weeks. You know, there's been a lot of news coverage. There's been a lot of discussion over those past 10 weeks. But let's take a look back, sort of what went wrong and walk me through the last two and a half months from when those orders dropped until now. Where where did things go so wrong, essentially? Well, one of the main things that happened was the emergence of the Delta strain, which, as we see in the southern part of the United States, uh, is really devastating their healthcare system, buckling it, in fact. Here in Wisconsin, we have not had the same kind of spike, but its cases have been rising, and that's simply because the Delta variant is just so very infectious. And there's no community, even here in Dane County, where we have high vaccination rates, there is no community that's protected against the Delta variant because it's just so infectious. So do you feel that this mask mandate that's being reissued is warranted as a, as a kind of precautionary step ahead of further Delta surges? I think so. Uh, we're headed into the fall where we know more activities are going to move indoors, particularly K-12 through education. And we really don't want to enter fall, uh, you know, having a spike with Delta that becomes just wholly unmanageable a little later. So right now it is good to take those precautions to limit uh, the, the spread of this variant. And also, I think it just having a mandate just reminds everybody that COVID has not gone away. We have a new variant that has very different transmission dynamics, and it's a threat to, uh, you know, us moving forward. So let's follow that strain and continue looking out into fall. You know, I started off this summer personally here with a lot of optimism after the uh, after the public health orders got dropped. That was quickly dashed. So I'm rapidly becoming a pessimist. Let's look out into, let's say, October, November. If Delta continues in its current form, what are we facing going into fall and, and then into winter? Well, it's always been, you know, we have we've been taking steps to, you know, preserve our healthcare systems. And we obviously are at at most hospitals, there's so many hospitals are at or near capacity right now. Nobody's being turned away, as far as I know, for care, but we don't want to be in a situation where people are unable to get health care because the beds are filled with people who have COVID. So I think moving you know, into the fall, if we can just sort of prevent that serious surge, you know, we might be in a better position. And if we don't have this indoor mask mandate, if we just let things go as they might, you know, we'll have a a problem we just don't want to face. And I think we can look to our states to the south and see exactly what Delta can do. How alone is Madison in this regard in reissuing a mask mandate? You know, you're, you're actually out in California in San Francisco right now, I believe, where they did reissue their indoor mask mandate. What's been the impact on case rates? Have they dropped dramatically or is it sort of too early in the in the Delta game to tell at the moment? It's a little too early, but in general, California has been more progressive and maybe the first to issue uh, restrictions and different mandates. And, and as a result, if you look at the epidemiology of Delta in California, it's just simply better or there's more optimism to avoid such a big spike compared to those states that really have flaunted you know, taking restrictions and, you know, maybe even made it against the law to even issue a mask mandate. Some of those states 
like Arkansas are starting to have regrets for have, even having those laws on the books. So certainly taking those precautions are needed. And I don't think Dane County is going to be the last. I think others are going to start to do that as well. In the medical community, what other strains of concern are currently, you know, right now it's the news coverage is largely about Delta that was behind issuing this new mask mandate, but it is not the only variant of concern right now. You know, I've seen some coverage of the Lambda coronavirus strain. What other strains of the coronavirus are you and other public health experts keeping their eyes on sort of on the back burner at the moment? Yeah. So the ones that are known are the Lambda variant that you just uh, mentioned. Uh, And also there's a Delta Plus variant that is a virus that is a further evolution of the Delta variant. I think we just have to recognize that as long as we have too many unvaccinated people in our society, this virus will continue to evolve. And so I think we're all waiting to see what that further evolution is going to be. And as research and studies are conducted, to figure out which ones, you know, may be even a bigger threat. Obviously, the virus has become more infectious. What we don't want is one that's more infectious and more deadly. But this is what we need to avoid. So how is Delta currently straining Wisconsin and here more locally, Dane County's uh, public health system? You know, we may not even be at the crest of this full Delta outbreak yet, uh, but how are things looking on the front line? How do things look for nurses, doctors, what have you on the ground? Yeah, if you look at the sort of the DHS statistics on where hospitals are at in terms of capacity, I, I mean, they're rather strained. Uh, they're at this point where if it gets much worse, we would say that the health system is even buckling. You know, when you're at 80, 90 percent capacity, maybe some ICUs are even teetering around 100 percent capacity. That's a problem. There's also more children who are hospitalized. And so We're also talking about pediatric intensive care units that are strained, and uh, that is definitely an issue. If somebody, if there's a car accident and a child is severely injured uh, and is in need of ICU care, if the local PICUs are are, are, are packed with COVID patients, then I think here in Wisconsin, we're not quite at the point where it's a, a complete crisis like some of those other states are in the South. But this is why we need to to be more proactive to avoid uh, that kind of crisis. Talk to me more about the the strain on the pediatric intensive care units. You know, when the initial coronavirus came about, uh, as I understood it, it didn't really have extreme adverse health impacts on on young children. Is Delta different in that regard? Uh, So the problem with uh, Delta, because it's so infectious, anybody who's unvaccinated is going to be susceptible. And kids, as we know, you know, they don't stay in isolation, they hang out with other kids. So when you get a gathering of kids, whether it's an outdoor summer camp or some kind of school activity or just being with friends at a birthday party, uh, if, if one person, an adult or a child, is carrying the virus, and it could be an adult who's vaccinated because breakthrough infections are possible. They're not the norm, but they are possible. And when they do occur and somebody is symptomatic, they can be very infectious. And so because we don't have any child under 12 years of old, 12 years of age vaccinated, uh, we have this entire sort of population uh, of kids who simply are vulnerable. So as a result of the high infectiousness of Delta, we have a lot more cases. And as a result, some of those cases, even in, in kids, 
will require hospitalization. It's, it's not a virus that's believed to be more deadly or somehow is targeting children. It's just simply because children under 12 have no protection. So how does that play out going into the, into the fall semester? As you know, within the next month, Madison students at least are going to be returning to the classroom. If we can't get this under control by then, which seems very likely, how does this play out when we hit the fall semester? Well, masks, masks are really important in any indoor environment, including K-12. And when it's possible, try to do some distancing as well. The other thing is, anybody who's eligible to be vaccinated really needs to choose vaccination. And if, if somebody were to uh, get one of the two-dose series started uh, today, then really in a month or six weeks, you know, they will you know, complete the series and actually have that protection, which is typically two weeks after the second dose. So the start of the K-12 through sort of uh, season uh, for people who are unvaccinated but then become vaccinated, they'll eventually get, get there. But, uh, but that's the thing. I think every adult, uh, anybody over 12, ought to be vaccinated, and that's what helps protect children under 12 who are not yet eligible. Dr. Sethi, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me. Before I let you go, as always, is there anything you'd like to add to the record that we haven't quite had a chance to discuss here today? Uh, I'll just simply say, you know, as I've always said, is uh, if somebody out there who's not vaccinated, please get vaccinated. Uh, it's, it's great for it's very important for your health. It's really important for our community's health and for the health of people who are immunocompromised uh, and as a result don't have the kind of immunity that we would hope, and also for children who just are not able to get vaccinated right now. Dr. Sethi, thank you so much, as always, for joining me today. Thank you, Jonah. Dr. Ajay Sethi is an associate professor of population health sciences at UW-Madison. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. We learn about some upcoming outdoor fun at Madison's Lucier Center. Wildlife Weekly talks about career opportunities in wildlife rehabilitation. And Radio Astronomy tracks cosmic waves that span the heavens. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Seeger Gray, here with my co-host, Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. With Dane County's new mask mandate, some folks' weekend plans may have gotten a bit more tricky for the foreseeable future. Thankfully, Madison's Lucier Center provides safe, socially distanced outdoor fun for the entire family. For more on the center's upcoming events, WORT producer Jonah Chester spoke with Lael Pasquale, the manager at the Lucier Family Heritage Center. 
So, you know, the recent heat may indicate otherwise, but summer is sort of slowly coming to a close here in Wisconsin. So talk to me uh, about what y'all at Lucia have been uh, doing the past couple months during the, the brief two and a half month period where we didn't have any public health orders. Talk to me about the programming you had these past few weeks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, we have had a wonderful summer here at the Lucia Family Heritage Center. We are part of Dane County Parks and we run our youth programs and a lot of our public engagement programs. So this summer has been really fun and really busy. We've had everything from field trips with local summer camps and community centers. Those programs run, you know, during the week and we offer a variety of different ones from, you know, aquatic adventures and learn to fish and bike to different hiking ones and learning about our Wisconsin wildlife. We also have had a number of public events uh, for families and for just our general community that include uh, movies in the park, presentations in the park that feature all sorts of different topics from, you know, sustainability, geology, um, stormwater, community gardens, and um, kind of pollution prevention programs. And then we also have some other fun ones like our art in the park and yoga in the park uh, programs that are run with partner organizations. So it's been a really fun summer. We've had um, everyone from youth to active older adults come out and just kind of enjoy the park. So for the folks who may not know and sort of sort of backing up a little bit, I probably should have started off with this, but tell me more about the Lucia Center. What, what sort of is your mission? Um, what do you do in the community? So the Lucia Family Heritage Center is part of Dane County Parks. Uh, we are located in William G. Lunny Lake Farm County Park, just about 10 to 15 minutes from downtown Madison. At this facility here, we run a number of private events like meetings, banquets, weddings, um, and retreats. But we also have a strong focus on environmental and outdoor education where our main focus is connecting our community and community partners uh, to the outdoors and our natural areas. We do a lot of programming around learning and connecting with nature and really having multiple experiences out in our parks. We work with everyone from uh, kindergarten through um, our active older adults, and then we do have some preschool and kind of toddler programs that we do a couple of times a week. All of our programs uh, range. We try to keep them as accessible as possible. So we have some that are free, some that are by donation, and then a few that do have a fee tied to them. And um, we try to spread out some of our programming from just being here at the center to doing outreach in other facilities or other parks around Dane County. So now getting back to the the programming y'all offer, looking into the fall, what are your what are your offerings look like? You know, with the recent announcement of Public Health Madison Dane County of the new mask mandate, I'm not sure if that complicates any of your any of your programming for the fall going forward. Yeah, so good question. Um, right now we are planning on moving forward with a number of our events. We're very fortunate that we can host almost 100% of our events outdoors. As a park facility, we utilize our open spaces and our covered outdoors shelter areas uh, for most of our events. So with that in mind, we've been able to successfully have most of our programs um, be totally outdoors. We are still continuing our presentations in the park series. Those are Thursday evenings um, and they start at 6 p.m. We have 
built a beer lab that comes out and serves beverages for purchase. And then we have a fun environmental topic uh, each week. We also have our final Movies in the Park coming up on August 26th, and that will be Disney Wings of Life. And then um, a really fun new event we have this year is our Monster Dash 5K. That's a walk, run, or roll through the park. It's on both paved and some grass trails. And that will be on October 15th, and we'll have a spooky movie um, afterwards. I want to circle back around to something you just mentioned there that particularly piqued my interest. Tell me more about that beer lab you have planned. Yeah, so Delta Beer Lab is a local um, brewery just down the road from the Lucia Family Heritage Center, and they come out on Thursday nights to serve beverages at at our presentations in the park event. And they will also be uh, at the Monster Dash 5K event. Talk to me about what you have planned for next spring and summer. You know, I, I'm not sure. Do you do anything over the winter? You know, Wisconsin winters. Personally, I don't like to get outside too much. Uh, but, you know, tell me about what the next few months past fall look like for your programming. Yeah, so we love winter, right? So, you know, there's always something fun going on in the parks. A lot of our parks have different candlelight um, ski events or snowshoe events. And we at the Lucia Family Heritage Center will also be putting on some learn to snowshoe events. And uh, those events are, you know, open to families. We, ha- we have um, snowshoes that we provide as part of that. And we just do a really easy introduction to snowshoeing so that you can test it out and see if you like it. So if that's something that you'd be interested in, definitely um, keep your eyes open on our website, which is lucierheritagecenter.com. Uh, which is, I'm going to spell out because it's a little complicated, L-U-S-S-I-E-R-H-E. E-R-I-T-A-G-E-C-E-N-T-E-R.com. And then do you have anything planned for spring and summer of next year? Or is that still sort of up in the air? How far out in advance do you plan your events? Yeah, so we will um, start making our announcements for our all of our summer adventures um, in the winter. So probably January and February, we'll have everything set that we plan to do. But we do plan to move forward with our youth programming field trips that we did this summer um, again next year. So groups would be able to sign up for those. And we do plan to continue our in the park event series. So, you know, the movies, presentations, and then art and yoga that we have going on. Leo, thank you so much for for chatting with me today. Before I let you go, is there anything else you want to add to the record about Lucia's uh, programming over the next few weeks? Anything we haven't had a chance to touch on that you want to let the, the greater Madison and Dane County community know about that you got going on? Yeah, I guess um, I would just say that there's always something going on in one of our Dane County parks. So whether it's with the Lucia Family Heritage Center or one of our fantastic park friends groups, there's always an event going on. I can pretty much guarantee there's something every weekend in all of our different communities that have parks. So from, you know, Wanakee to south of Oregon, all the way from our eastern and western communities in Dane County, there's always something going on. So on our Dane County Parks website, just danecountyparks.com. There's an event page. All of the Heritage Center events are there. And then all of our Park Friends Group events from volunteering to family-friendly events um, to different learning workshops. There's always something going on. All right. I've been joined on the other end of the line by Leo Pasquale, the manager at the Lucier Family Heritage Center. Leo, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me. Thanks, Jonah. I really appreciate you having me out. Are you someone who loves wildlife? 
Are you willing to get down and dirty to lend a hand to help Dane County's furry friends? If the answer to either of those questions is yes, then you may want to consider a career in wildlife rehabilitation. In this archival episode of Wildlife Weekly, which originally aired last October, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg details what it takes to work with the Humane Society's wildlife rehab team. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we're going to be talking about a career in wildlife rehabilitation. And, you know, I get so many questions about what it's like to be a rehabilitator. Um, this is the time of year uh, right here in the fall where we are interviewing for our next uh, apprentice. We actually have an apprenticeship program here at DCHS. Uh, someone that gets to learn under our advanced licensing, uh, our experience gaining our knowledge uh, for a full year with us. And, and we're in our interview processes and it just made me think, you know, there's not a lot of people out there that uh, understand what it's really like to be in a position like ours. So I thought it'd be a fun segment just to talk about what it's like to be a rehabilitator. Um, you know, after 10 years of experience here, um, I started off small uh, as an intern, you know, heck when I was at UW-Madison as an undergraduate, my degree was in zoology and, and I fell in love with birds. Um, so I really got involved at the Wildlife Center because of my love for birds, but um, the, my time here uh, has really exposed me to so many different species working with not only songbirds, but raptors, waterfowl, reptiles, uh, mammals, so many mammal species. Did I ever think that I'd be working with bats as a rehabilitator 10 years ago? No, I never knew that I would be working with so many different species of those different types. Um, so for us, um, and honestly, the best part of my job is getting to teach other people how to do what we've done and what we've learned over the years. Um, as a rehabilitator, it's really coming in every single day, knowing that there's so much that's unexpected. I don't know what's going to come into our wildlife center. I don't know what kind of injuries they're going to have. I don't know what kind of species. I don't know what time they are always going to be here. People could be coming from two hours away, or they could be coming from right down here in Madison downtown. And we always get phone calls ahead of time. Um, as a rehabilitator, it's a lot of communication with the public, uh, helping them troubleshoot through any topic that they have. You know, oh, I found this baby bunny down my window well. What the heck do I do? Or this bird hit my window. What do I do? And what species is this? We get a lot of photographs that are emailed to us uh, so that we could verify species. So as a rehabilitator, it's um, it's knowing that you're going to work with the unexpected. Um, also, the pace of rehabilitation is actually pretty speedy. Um, I like to think that if you're a waitress in your past lifetime, you can do a really good job as a wildlife rehabilitator. Or if you are a, a line chef, um, getting to prepare all these different specialty diets for animals and just being that sous chef, chopping up fruit of different varieties, trying to give them the best enrichment possible, um, being able to create these spaces and environments, even like an artist almost, to help these animals rehabilitate in the proper environment that they need to really be successful and to recover. So you got to know species. You have to know how to troubleshoot situations when people call and triage. You know, does this animal need our care? Does it, is it injured? Does it need to come in? Does it have a broken leg? Does it have a broken wing? Uh, is it just a healthy baby and it just needs to stay out there in the environment? 
So, you know, our first stage is just learning as much as possible about different species that live here in Wisconsin, what their dietary requirements are, um, how to identify what their needs are in rehabilitation and how they'd be successful. And we learn that all through mentorship from past wildlife rehabilitators or from our schooling, you know, and our degrees, learning ornithology or mammalogy, um, you know, learning about reptiles and amphibians of the state, learning from other experts, too, from the Department of Natural Resources or U.S. Fish and Wildlife wildlife. There's a lot of people that have expert niches out there, and we really learn from those people over time. So it's time intensive, and things are always changing, and we're always learning. Um, and then our partnerships with our veterinarians are so critical because um, we, you know, we can't, as rehabilitators, perform surgeries, prescribe medications, or do some of the more complex stuff with wildlife without the training or licensing. So um, our veterinarians really provide a lot of expert care as well. Um, and some people combine both. You know, they become veterinarians and then also gain a wildlife rehabilitation license. Um, so there's lots of avenues to go and lots of expertise areas that you can kind of delve into. Um, so our every day is coming in knowing that whatever someone's going to call about, we're there to help them out and we're going to do our best. Um, there's limitations, obviously, of course. Right now with COVID, um, we're limited in taking certain species because of a risk of transfer. Um, sometimes you find yourself at capacity as a wildlife rehabilitator. Maybe you have so many animals and not enough cage space or not enough help. You know, that's always a factor. And that's something we've definitely felt during COVID is trying to help as much as we can with a limited number of people. Um, so you have to be uh, ready for that, ready for the unexpected. So you come in and, you know, our goal is to check over every single patient that's in our care. The patients in our care are our primary concern. We go around uh, during our medical rounds. We get all of their medications prepped, their treatments ready. We have a plan for the day. Uh, so we're going around giving them fresh food, fresh diets, fresh cages, all the medications and treatments that they need, and then leaving them alone to recover. So we're kind of in and out. Uh, we start our day every day prepping everything, getting everybody the best care possible. And then we kind of find our downtime where we return phone calls, uh, set up new appointments for new animals that are sick or injured or orphaned. Uh, and then we move along our day, then working through coordination, um, trying to train new people, new volunteers, new interns, our new apprentice, showing them, you know, what we do as rehabilitators, what we've learned, um, how to manage a center uh, normally operated by 200 volunteers with only six of us on staff. So, you know, we're, we're pretty small, uh, even though we're the third largest rehabilitation center in the state of Wisconsin. So then we spend all of our afternoon with all of our new intakes, doing physical exams and diagnostics, drawing blood, doing x-rays, um, everything for all these new patients that have come in uh, until we find ourselves in the mid-afternoon or nighttime. If we get to stop for lunch, it's a lucky day. Actually, we do. We take our lunches. But it's always busy. You know, we're always kind of flying by the seat of our pants trying to figure out what's the next thing coming in and how can we care for these patients best. Uh, and then by evening, we've got evening medications and our cleaning. We have to make sure our, our housing and our facility is clean and sanitized and ready for the next day, trying to keep uh, all diseases, quarantine procedures in place. And finally, just our nocturnal animals, you know, any animals that would normally be awake and eating at night, we would give their care. You know, our owls, for example, they got all of the, the care in the nighttime. And then we we go home and we think about our day and think about how many animals we helped and we go right back at it again. Uh, and the best part of it is getting to plan releases throughout those days of the week, um, you know, getting time to show other people the cool, the unexpected, the different species that we have in our care. And really, that is every day. And for my experience, the last 10 years of my life, it's it's pretty amazing uh, knowing that every day will be different and that we get to show people what we know and what we get to do because we are helping animals that otherwise would not have help uh, from the general public uh, out in the wild. 
So I'm appreciative of my career and what we do here at the Wildlife Center at Dane County Humane Society. Uh, so I wanted to share a little bit about that procedure. So I hope from hearing this, you get to know what that, that is like. Uh, and we hope that maybe someday we get to meet all of you. If you ever think about volunteering, um, obviously post COVID, uh, or if ever become an intern with our program, definitely something fun to do throughout the year. So yes, that's a little bit about a career in wildlife rehabilitation. Uh, this has been our Wildlife Weekly segment, and if you ever need to call us, give us a call at 608-287-3235. This has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The Grammy Award-winning artist and one-time presidential candidate Kanye West once said, Waves don't die. That claim holds true in space, as waves of light and other forms of energy can radiate outwards for countless light years. In this archival edition of Radio Astronomy, which first broadcast last November, crew member Zach Pace introduces the science of cosmic waves. How many different kinds of waves are letting you hear my voice today? And where can we find other kinds of waves in space? The answers may surprise you. This is Zach Pace for Radio Astronomy, transmitting once again from my personal six-foot bubble. Today, we're going to talk about waves. If you walk by a lake or river, you see them wash up or break on shore, but that's not all. Waves underlie how humans experience the world and how we interact with it through technology. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. Before we go on, we should ask a very simple question. What is a wave, anyway? A wave is simply a disturbance that changes with time and moves through space. Think about dropping a pebble into a calm, glassy pond. The initial impact of the pebble drives water out of the way. This water plows into its surroundings and piles up. The wave has moved. But now the high point, called the crest, is in a precarious situation. It's higher up than its neighbors, and so it's pulled back down towards being flat. A lot of that water being pulled back down plows into its neighborhood, moving the wave a little more. But some of the water overshoots being flat, compared with its surroundings, and dips below level, forming a trough. This cycle continues as the wave moves on and on. The number of times per second that one specific place on the water's surface oscillates up and down in one full cycle is called the wave's frequency. So to sum up, a water wave on the surface of a pond initially responds to a disturbance, but propagates through space because gravity is trying to equalize the water level. Remember, this is the definition of a wave. 
and so we're able to apply the lessons we've learned from water waves to other kinds of waves. In fact, there's another kind of wave that's responsible for how people communicate, and it's probably how you're interacting with this broadcast. That kind of wave is a pressure wave, more commonly known as a sound wave. Just like waves on the surface of a pond are pileups of water regulated by gravity, sound waves are pileups of air regulated by pressure. A sound wave moves as air becomes minutely denser, and then some excess particles of air move out of the way and create a new overdensity next door. People with a sense of hearing, that's most but not all people, perceive the very small changes in air pressure produced by someone speaking, clapping, ringing a bell, or playing a violin as movements of tiny hairs in their inner ear. Depending on the frequency of the wave, which remember is the number of cycles per second between high and low pressure, different hairs inside the inner ear are stimulated. The brain interprets the movements of these different hairs, all sensitive to different frequencies of pressure wave, as different pitches of sound. Okay, so you're hearing my voice because a car's speaker or your earbuds or your home sound system is making pressure waves in the air. But, for all of you listening over the radio, there's another different kind of wave that's involved. To understand it, we have to talk about how it propagates. Instead of gravity or pressure, this new kind of wave requires electric and magnetic forces to move through space. More specifically, electromagnetic forces act when you move electric charges around. Electric charges basically come in two varieties, positive and negative. There are just about as many positive charges in the universe as negative charges, but it's possible to separate the two kinds of charges. The negative charge is carried in the electron, which is a very small particle that usually lives in an atom. But if you separate an electron from an atom, you can move the electron around and manipulate it. Now suppose you put an electron on the end of a stick and started to wave the stick around, up and down, up and down, repeatedly. The environment around the electron starts to experience an electric field that changes every time the charge completes one cycle, up and down. This changing electric field, in turn, causes a magnetic force to be exerted in the area, as nearby charges sort of try to compensate for how the electric field is changing. Lo and behold, this causes more nearby charges to wiggle around, and the signal propagates to nearby. So by wiggling around an electric charge in one place, we can cause electric and magnetic fields to wiggle around far away. These rapidly changing electric and magnetic fields combined are called an electromagnetic wave, sometimes also called electromagnetic radiation or a radio wave. And it's no coincidence that the radio receiver in your car or stereo system is called a radio. It's named after the kind of waves it picks up. When the show is broadcast, the radio station is basically wiggling around a charge, but in a very precise way, and in a way that your receiver can interpret and decode into the sound of my voice. Radio waves aren't just limited to broadcasting a signal for communication, though. They're also crucial to how astronomers observe the universe. It turns out lots of things in the universe emit radio waves. After a star explodes and goes supernova, its remnant has a massive magnetic field, which interacts with nearby electrons, causing radio waves to be emitted. Radio waves which we can tune receivers to on Earth in order to study those objects. In fact, most fields of astronomy use radio waves in some form or another. They're a hugely important window that we use to learn how the universe behaves. Today, we discussed three different kinds of waves that are part of our everyday lives on Earth. Gravity-driven waves, like you might see on the surface of a pond, pressure waves that your brain interprets as sound, and radio waves that propagate because of electric and magnetic fields. 
Electromagnetic waves are used on Earth to transmit signals like radio and are emitted by objects in the universe like supernova remnants and galaxies. For more information, you can visit the website of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center and their Imagine the Universe portal, which discusses the different kinds of electromagnetic waves present in the universe. Thanks for joining us today and have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy Crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Jonah Chester produced and reported this newscast. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Seeger Gray. Up next is Spanish language news with En Nuestro Patio. Good night. <laughs>